100 years of existence, the city of New Orleans has been known by many names. The Crescent City, the City That Care Forgot, the Paris of the South, and the Big Easy. It has always been a city of extremes, of contradictions, and of innumerable curiosities. In its early days, it was perhaps the only place in the New World where a voodoo queen and a Catholic priest could be friends. Art, culture, and spirituality flourished, and to the horrors of their American neighbors, dance halls, bars, and gambling dens stayed open far past the respectable hours. It was a city of luxuriant gardens, cosmopolitan theaters, and opera houses, and colorful parades filled its streets come rain or shine. The Creole love of life was, and still is, proclaimed in a thousand different ways. However, there exists a dark underbelly of New Orleans, and not too long ago, this seemingly carefree city took on other names during its history. It was called the Wet Grave, Home of the Floating Coffin, Graveyard of the Nation, and the Necropolis of the South. It was a muggy, muddy town ridden with disease, violence, and death. In the 19th century, there was no other city in America plagued by such widespread tragedy and death as the city of New Orleans. Devastating yellow fever epidemics, public displays of torture and execution, the depravity and visibility of urban slavery, and an astounding crime rate kept hospitals and cemeteries at high capacity. Citizens struggled to bury their dead in a city barely above sea level. On rainy days, it was said coffins and corpses rose out of the ground if the stray dogs had not already got hold of them. And in a hardly tamed swampy wilderness, stories of vampires, rougarous, ghosts, and other supernatural beings thrived. Voodoo, spiritualism, and stories of the supernatural comforted a citizenry who witnessed the deaths of their loved ones far too often and much too soon. It was a city of gardens, city of cemeteries. It was indeed a strange and beautiful city of life and death. New Orleans has long been regarded as a high-spirited place, and it's a city that is kind to ghosts. And in this episode, those ghosts will serve as our spectral messengers, our storytellers from New Orleans' troubled past. What's up, guys? Welcome back to Paranormal Community College and happy Halloween. My name is Riley, and today we're talking about one of my favorite subjects, and that is New Orleans ghosts and legends. And if you're watching on YouTube, you can see that I finally have video. So my goal is to have one video a week for now. And then hopefully once I get the hang of things, I can go back to doing two episodes a week. So thank you guys so much for sticking with me. Make sure you like, subscribe, follow leave a comment, tell your friends and family, all that good stuff. Make sure you follow me on Instagram. And um, I really appreciate all that. So thank you guys. So I used to live in New Orleans. And before I moved there, I used to go there as much as I could. And I simply just fell in love with the city. It's culture, it's food, it's music, the people. And while I'm very happy with where I'm at now, a part of my soul will always remain in New Orleans. So I really hope that my passion and love and deep appreciation for the city really comes through in this episode. And so our setting for this episode will be the dimly lit alleyways of New Orleans' dark history. Our cast of characters will include a murderous axeman, an elusive alchemist, a bloodthirsty sultan, a few vampires, the innumerable enslaved men and women who built this beautiful city, and much more still. But before I begin, I would like to give you guys just a brief little history lesson to provide some context. New Orleans was founded in 1718 by the French Mississippi Company under the direction of wealthy explorer Jean-Baptiste Lemoine de Bienville. He and his older brother, Pierre Lemoine de Iberville, 
are considered the founding fathers of New Orleans and French Louisiana for that matter. And the city's French history and legacy obviously is still very much appreciated today. From the food to Mardi Gras to street names, that French joie de vivre the Big Easy is so famous for, New Orleans is a city very much proud of its Gallic roots. In the early years, however, La Nouvelle Orleans was something of a boogeyman to people back in France. Lured to Louisiana with tales of a Garden of Eden, a French El Dorado, mild weather and friendly Native Americans, Frenchmen and their families quickly realized they had been tricked into settling in a disease-ridden and suffocatingly hot swamp that teemed with all manner of slithering beasts and flying insects. And so when good honorable Frenchmen stopped coming to Louisiana voluntarily, the French crown decided to send in the undesirables, the lost and abandoned, the criminals. Pit pockets, prostitutes, political prisoners, murderers, gamblers, orphans. And it is these lovely people, and a few respectable ones, who came to make up the city of New Orleans. Along with these people, we also have hundreds of thousands of enslaved men and women, as well as Haitian immigrants and other free people of color. And over the decades, Irish, German, and Italian immigrants came and settled in the Crescent City as well. And while French culture and heritage stood fast from the very beginning, many often aren't aware that the Spanish ruled New Orleans for about 40 years. In fact, many of the quintessential things we associate with New Orleans today came from the Spanish influence. The wrought iron balconies, the grid-like layout of the French Quarter, the above-ground tombs, and actually, the vast majority of French Quarter buildings are from the Spanish period. And one reason why this is, is because the French Quarter actually burned to the ground twice, once in 1788 and again in 1794. That's why there's only a handful of original 18th century buildings left in the French Quarter. The Spanish owned New Orleans from 1763 to 1803, and their presence in the city was seen more as an undesirable occupation. The Spanish sought to establish order amidst the chaos of colonial New Orleans, but the inhabitants of New Orleans rebelled, sometimes aggressively and other times with humor, ambivalence, or an outright ignoring of Spanish laws. When the Americans purchased Louisiana from the French in 1803, so yes, the uh, Spanish had Louisiana from 1763 to 1803, briefly handed it back over to the French, and then the French sold it to the Americans. The Americans too tried to come in and establish order to Americanize the godless New Orleanians, the Catholics, the free people of color, mostly to no avail. You see, New Orleanians have never been very fond of following the rules, which is just one of the many reasons why I love them. Moving into the 19th century, there are two aspects of New Orleans life that I want to highlight in particular. Firstly, that of urban slavery. So if you are ever in the French Quarter and you're on a tour, or maybe you just overhear a tour group, you may hear a tour guide say something like, well, you know, slaves in New Orleans didn't have it so bad. They got Sundays off. They had Congo Square. They were treated fairly nicely compared to other enslaved men and women around the United States. However, that is simply not true. While in some ways it was better to be an enslaved man or woman in New Orleans, you had better opportunities to escape, to form kinship with other enslaved people as well as free people of color, and at least until the Americans took over, you did have a better chance of being set free, the reality of slavery in New Orleans was brutal and in many ways more dehumanizing than plantation slavery. Sure, they did have Congo Square, where free people of color as well as enslaved men and women could gather and play music and dance and socialize, not all enslaved men and women were even permitted to go to Congo Square. 
So yes, the brutality and violence of urban slavery in New Orleans was very much visible on a daily basis, and don't let a tour guide tell you anything differently. Just because some enslaved men and women had access to more freedoms than others at times doesn't mean that New Orleans was, you know, extra nice to enslaved people, and that's kind of the vibe they give off sometimes um, when you go on certain tours in New Orleans. So just be aware that no, it was very much visible, it was very brutal, and extremely violent. Benjamin Latrobe wrote that he was, quote, constantly annoyed by hearing the cracking of a whip followed by screams along the levee as slave masters punished their unruly slaves. Punishments were public and exceptionally degrading. One pamphlet from the 1840s written by a visitor to the city recorded an event where an enslaved woman in her early 20s was paraded through the streets naked and whipped to such a degree that her breasts were hanging in shreds. In the earlier days, hands of disobedient slaves were nailed to public buildings. After an attempted slave revolt, the severed heads of the conspirators were placed upon stakes along the Mississippi River. Their bodies were hung upside down in the public square, now Jackson Square, and in the same bustling Jackson Square today, slaves and criminals alike were broken upon the wheel for all to see. And the wheel was a medieval torture device, where an individual was placed upon a horizontal wheel, their arms and legs spread out, while the executioner broke every bone in their body with a sledgehammer until they slowly and painfully died. But it is true that slaves were permitted to participate in Mardi Gras, at least some of them if their owners allowed, and it is true that slaves in New Orleans had the chance of being bought by a wealthy free person of color to then be freed themselves. Marie Laveau was known to do this very thing. Another thing that affected nearly every aspect of life in New Orleans was yellow fever. It swept over the city seasonally between May and October, so nearly half the year. While locals and natives to the city learned to live with it to some degree, things became dire in the 19th century when the population grew with the influx of Haitian refugees and the influx of unacclimated American immigrants. Businesses closed for the summer, and if you were in New Orleans for the pandemic, I imagine it may have been that same kind of sad, depressing, ghost town kind of vibe. Entire families perished during these yellow fever epidemics. Cemeteries filled up so quickly that shallow ditches had to be dug or bodies were thrown into the Mississippi. Children were left orphans and parents were left childless. Bloated yellow bodies were left abandoned in the streets, sometimes covered up with no more than a few leaves. For nearly 100 years, the seasonal saffron scourge, as it was called, terrorized New Orleans. The stench of decaying flesh was unbearable. The familiar sounds of drunken laughter, music, and second lines were replaced with funeral dirges and a seemingly never-ending procession of funerals. One Baptist pastor said in a matter of 24 hours he had married a couple, only to bury the both of them the very next day. Alongside plague and man-made disaster, we also know that the city that care for God exists at the whim of Mother Nature. Nearly 2,000 people died in Hurricane Katrina in 2005, and the scars and collective trauma of that storm are still very much felt today. Since the very beginning, New Orleans has led a rather precarious existence. Historian Lawrence Powell in his book, The Accidental City, says that it's a city that has never been for the faint of heart. But one of the most admirable things about New Orleans is its ability to come together as a city to heal. It is a city that grieves together, a city that heals together, and a city that celebrates together because I think they know more than most 
that life is short and we all got to cherish it and enjoy it as much as possible. So that is my super quick NOLA History 101 rundown. And I know I left out a bunch of stuff, but this is a paranormal podcast and we want to get to those scary stories. So without further ado, let's get into it. So I feel like everyone who goes to New Orleans often has like a ritual for their first day there. And for me, my ritual is I check into my hotel room and then I go to Pirate's Alley Cafe and I order a dark and stormy so I can get my favorite cocktail for my favorite bartender in my favorite city. And Pirate's Alley, situated between the St. Louis Cathedral and the Cabildo, which was once the headquarters of the Spanish government, is home to some of New Orleans' oldest ghosts. With Spanish officials on one side and Catholic priests on the other side, it may be surprising that this little alleyway was where pirates and smugglers sold contraband, women, slaves, booze, guns, and it's where they dueled and brawled with each other, where they gambled with each other. In the early foggy hours of the morning, when the bar is closed down and Jackson Square is silent, some have said they can hear metal clashing upon metal in the alley, like swords striking against each other. Others say they hear whispers in French and Spanish, the firing of a pistol, the screams of a woman, perhaps an enslaved woman or a poor French girl dropped off in the port of New Orleans for pirates and sailors to take advantage of. And as you can imagine, some of these pirates and drunken brawlers found themselves jailed in the cabildo next door. And while there are no barred windows there now, the windows of the holding cells used to face the alley, and some say they've seen phantom hands reaching out of the cabildo. One morning, in those strange New Orleans hours where most have finally retired to their homes or hotel rooms, where laborers haven't yet started their day, but where the stragglers from this bar or that bar have much of the quarter to themselves, a young man had a strange experience in Pirate's Alley. Alone, he walked down the alley from Jackson Square, or so he thought, when he saw a strange figure wildly running towards him from Royal Street. The figure had long black hair, a thick mustache, tannish white tattered clothes, he was wearing some kind of hat, maybe a tri-cornered hat, and tall boots, although it was hard for the solo straggler to tell because the figure was not totally opaque. He was like a shade, a ghost, somewhat see-through. As the figure ran towards him, he stood frozen in fear. The figure had a dagger, perhaps a sword in his hand. He admits he had had a few drinks that night and everything happened a little fast. And when the figure approached him, he seemed to run right through him. And when he did, the man felt an electrifying chill shoot through his toes to his fingertips and out the top of his head. The strange figure was nowhere to be seen after that, and while the man did say that he had a few drinks that night, the whole experience sobered him up pretty quick. And I don't care who you are, I've never been so drunk that I've hallucinated or thought that I was seeing ghosts, but who knows. But some suggest that perhaps the apparition that the man saw that night was not just any old ghost. That perhaps it was a pirate, and not just any pirate, but THE pirate. The pirate Jean Lafitte. And on Bourbon Street alone, we have three bars named after the guy. Lafitte in Exile, the oldest gay bar in the United States, Lafitte's Blacksmith Shop, a dimly lit piano bar, and then we have the Lafitte Hotel and Bar right next door. And let's face it, they're probably all haunted, but for now, let's talk about Lafitte's Blacksmith Shop located on the corner of Bourbon and St. Philip. 
Built between 1722 and 1732, you will hear many tour guides say that this is the oldest still operating bar in America. While that's not the case, it still is old as shit and has a ton of cool history, so who cares? According to its website, like most New Orleans legends, Lafitte's blacksmith shop is a gumbo of truth and French, Spanish, African, Cajun, and American embellishments. It is one of the few original 18th century French buildings left still standing, thankfully surviving the fires of 1788 and 1794. The age of its liquor license is up for debate, but it was supposedly a smuggling operation fronting as a blacksmith shop. And who ran this smuggling operation? Jean Lafitte and his brother Pierre. Now Jean Lafitte was more than some swashbuckler. He was also one of the heroes of the Battle of New Orleans, but that's another story for another time. Some say his ghost can still be seen here. One man claimed he was sitting in the back by the piano when he noticed a strange man standing by the men's bathroom door. Now, if you've been to Lafitte's blacksmith shop, you know it's really dark in there, so he couldn't make out many of the details. But he said he was just standing there, leaning against the wall, staring at him with a smug smile on his face. He had dark hair, a dark mustache, but that's all he really seemed to notice. And many people claim to see this exact apparition, believed to be the ghost of Jean Lafitte. They say he stands in dark corners, just staring, waiting for someone to notice him. So I used to go to Lafitte's blacksmith shop during COVID, and it was one of you know one of the only bars that was open sometimes, and it was really slow. And I got to kind of talk to the bartenders, and I asked them if they had ever seen anything spooky, if you know it was true, if Lafitte's blacksmith shop was haunted. And of course, they told me yes, every building in New Orleans is haunted first and foremost. But um, they said that they would see glasses fall off the uh, shelf, they'd see bottles thrown across the room, they've heard footsteps coming from the second story when no one should be up there, and they also told me a rather strange story that I'm going to share with you guys now. They told me the story where they let a man stay overnight in the bar, and I can't remember if this man was maybe a homeless person that they trusted, if it was a friend of theirs who had way too much to drink and who needed a crash there for some reason, but they let some dude stay overnight and they were just gonna be closed down for a few hours anyway, so they didn't think much of it. But what they told me is that when they came back to unlock the doors just a few hours later, they found the man frantic, desperately trying to get out because he said it was haunted and that there was someone else in there with him. Now, yes, you can say this man was not all there perhaps, we don't know who he was, but it's an interesting story to say the least. Um, also, apparently, the footsteps coming from the second floor are alleged to be that of a woman from the late 1800s who used to live up there. According to legend, the woman killed herself and perhaps haunts the building to this very day. But along with pirates, New Orleans has had its fair share of madams and prostitutes, as does any old port city. And I really could have an entire two-part episode just on the ghosts of prostitutes or old haunted brothels in New Orleans, but for now, I'll tell you one that comes from a popular French Quarter bar you can easily visit when you go to New Orleans. The bar in question is called MRB, short for Mississippi River Bar, and it is located just off Decatur at 515 St. Philip Street. It's a good spot to watch a Saints game, by the way. If you've been there before, you might know that this lovely neighborhood bar used to be a brothel. Where MRB is located would have been close to what used to be called Gallatin Street 
a street known for prostitutes, gamblers, and drinkers, a place where one could see sex acts being performed in the wide open, and St. Philip Street wasn't much classier. But at the old brothel on 515 St. Philip Street, one woman of the night had dreams beyond her current station in life. An Irish immigrant, this young lass moved to New Orleans, but without a man by her side and without a lot of money or family, she didn't have much options for survival. And so, she turned to the oldest profession in the book. But this Irish woman's luck was about to change. She met a man of decent enough means, and he promised that he would marry her. And I've heard two different versions of this story. In one version, Maggie got all dolled up, thinking her knight in shining armor would be there that night, whisk her away on his gallant horse, they'd get married, maybe move to the country, and they'd live happily ever after. Her days of prostitution long behind her. But the dirty bastard stood her up and never came to see her again. Broken-hearted, embarrassed, discouraged, the young Irish immigrant hung herself in the courtyard. She was wearing her wedding dress. In another version, this man who promised her a better life unfortunately had to leave to go fight in the Civil War. But he promised her that when he returned, he would make an honest woman out of her. He unfortunately returned in a pine box, and she, donned in her wedding gown, hung herself in the courtyard. People have said her spirit still haunts the place. She's known to reveal herself mostly to women, partic particularly in the women's bathroom. Some have claimed to see her face in the mirror as they're washing their hands. On at least one occasion, employees at MRB have had to clean up after the mirror has broken into pieces out of nowhere. Others say the lights turn on and off. Someone told me that a while back when they had karaoke, a woman screamed as she saw the figure of a woman in a wedding dress appear behind the singer. But if you do find yourself at the old Mississippi River bar, perhaps order yourself some nice Irish whiskey and pay your respects to this woman and the many other women from Ireland who likely, unfortunately, found themselves in a similar situation. But okay, let's pick a fun one after that depressing tale. I mean, to be honest, there's not a lot of fun ones. A lot of these ghost stories kind of illustrate the darker side of life for many people who lived in New Orleans, but we aren't just talking about ghosts here, so let's talk about the Rougarou, the Cajun werewolf. And before all you proper Frenchies come after me, yes, I know it is the Lougarou, but we're in Cajun country for this episode and they call it the Rougarou. And while versions of this beast differ from bayou to bayou, the Rougarou is essentially a blood-sucking werewolf that lurks within the swamps of Acadiana and the greater New Orleans area. The story of the Rougarou was used to inspire fear and obedience among good Cajun children. Don't go into the swamp by yourself or the Rougarou might get you. You know what happens to Cajun children who don't say their prayers at night. Better not break Lent or you'll bring on the curse of the Rougarou, and so on and so forth. According to one legend, a Rougarou is a human under a spell for 101 days before the curse is passed on to someone else. In other versions, the Rougarou is more like a giant evil rabbit, which sounds way more terrifying than a werewolf to me for some reason. The Rougarou may be gray or black and is usually thought to have red glowing eyes. Like all things terrifying in the night, they have long, sharp teeth and claws to tear you to shreds with. While alleged Rougarou sightings have been recorded for a couple hundred years now, here and there never really any evidence to prove anything, kind of like Bigfoot, some say they have seen the Rougarou in more recent times. 
Back in the 1950s, a group of men in Terrebonne Parish were walking home from a bar one night, and they were in a wooded area, taking the long way home to avoid any encounters with the cops and whatnot, when they heard rustling in the bushes. They start joking around that a Rougarou must be following them when they hear a growl. A growl that seemed to make the whole ground vibrate, made their very bones vibrate. In the tall, swampy grass, they saw a pair of red, glowing eyes. They smelled what they described as a wet dog, only worse. And then they watched in horror as the eyes stood taller and taller until they could see a six-foot-tall creature covered in dirty, blackish-brown fur. The men began to run, screaming for help down the dark country road, too petrified to look back. But when they finally did, they saw the creature standing still in the middle of the road, having not moved or chased after them, just standing there, staring, its eyes still growing, glowing red. Of course, when they got home, sweating and out of breath, their families thought they were crazy and began laughing at them, teasing them, telling them how foolish they were to believe in Cajun fairy tales, but they wouldn't be the first or the last to claim a run-in with the Rougarou. This beast of the Louisiana Bayou was seen most recently in 2016, as far as I could tell, in Homa, also in Terrebonne Parish. A man claimed he saw a dark figure with red glowing eyes in the swamps one night, but that's pretty much all the witness has to say about it, so who knows. Maybe anyone else who has seen the Rougarou never lived to tell the tale. But I've always said that should anything inhuman walk the streets of New Orleans, you probably wouldn't even notice. Because on any given day of the week, there's people dressed as vampires, as pirates, as eight-foot-tall giant robots, and anything you can really think of. And with so many people noticing little more than blurry neon lights and lime green hand grenades, any old creature of the night could slip in and out unnoticed. And perhaps the most beloved, the sexiest anyway creature of the night in New Orleans is, of course, the vampire. So now I'd like to share with you one of my favorite French Quarter legends, and that is the story of the vampire Jacques Saint Germain. The legend of Jacques Saint Germain actually begins not in New Orleans, but in France back in the 1700s. So a fellow known as the Count of Saint Germain started making his rounds in well-to-do circles throughout Europe during the early to mid-18th century. Le Comte de Saint-Germain, who also went by the names Marquis de Montferrat, Comte Bellamar, Count Weldon, and more, was an adventurer, scientist, philosopher, alchemist, artist, talented musician of many instruments, a mesmerist, so a real 18th century jack-of-all-trades. He knew a seemingly infinite number of languages and would talk about historical events as if he had been there himself. Voltaire, the famous French philosopher, dubbed Saint Germain the Wonder Man and said, quote, he is a man who does not die and who knows everything. Frederick the Great also called him, quote, the man who would not die. One text from England says this strange count was arrested in London in 1745. Here is what they had to say about him. The other day they seized an odd man who goes by the name of Count Saint Germain. He has been here two years and will not tell us who he is. He sings, plays on the violin wonderf wonderfully, composes, is mad, and not very sensible. He is called an Italian, a Spaniard, a Pole, somebody that married a great fortune in Mexico and ran away with her jewels to Constantinople, a priest, a fiddler, a vast nobleman. The Prince of Wales has had an unsatiated curiosity about him, but in vain. 
However, nothing has been made out against him. He is released and what convinces me that he is not a gentleman stays here and talks of his being taken up for a spy. Now I know what you may be thinking. Clearly, this guy is just some sort of 18th century competence man. They exist now, they've existed in every century since, and they will unfortunately always exist. However, this is just the beginning of the Jacques Saint Germain rabbit hole. And did I mention he also claimed to be Francis II Roccozzi of Transylvania, so one of the descendants of Dracula himself. But anyway, moving on. By 1749, he was employed by Louis XV as a diplomat. In France, they said of Saint Germain, quote, He was a scholar, linguist, musician, and chemist, good looking, and a perfect ladies' man. For a while, he gave them paints and cosmetics. He flattered them, not that he would make them young again, which he modestly confessed was beyond him, but that their beauty would be preserved by means of a wash, which, he said, cost him a lot of money but which he gave away freely. This extraordinary man, intended by nature to be the king of impostors and quacks, would say in an easy, assured manner that he was 300 years old, that he knew the secret of the universal medicine, that he possessed a mastery over nature, that he could melt diamonds, professing himself capable of forming out of 10 or 12 small diamonds one large one of the finest water without any loss of weight. All this, he said, was a mere trifle to him. Notwithstanding his boastings, he, his barefaced lies, and his manifold eccentricities, I cannot say I thought him offensive. In spite of my knowledge of what he was and in spite of my own feelings, I thought him an astonishing man and he was always astonishing me. When he died in 1779, it was found that he had only that of an average middle-class merchant. No diamonds or gold or fancy expensive items, no fancy linens. He was a very above average, average dude, or so it seemed. But for whatever reason, his story seems to pick up again in New Orleans over 100 years later in 1903. A French immigrant, a man by the name of Jacques Saint Germain, moved into a large two-story house on the corner of Ursulines and Royal Street. And he wasn't shy about telling people who he was. He told the people of New Orleans straight up, that he was the descendant of the infamous Comte de Saint-Germain, the wonder man of Europe, the famous alchemist. And he'd host grand dinner parties where he invited politicians, local celebrities, and any, anyone important. But rumors started to spread when people came from these lavish dinner parties saying that Jacques never ate. In fact, he had everything catered, even the utensils and kitchenware were rented. He would simply sit at the head of the table and drink a bottle of wine, red wine. Now, Jacques was known to be a ladies' man. He was known to patron the local pubs every night with his pals, and he was known to bring home some new young woman every night. One night, however, things didn't go as planned. One evening, Jacques brought a young woman home and they went up to his bedroom. She had her back turned to Jacques for a moment as she was admiring some artifacts he had on a mantle. And the way the story goes is that out of the corner of her eye, the woman saw Jacques swoop upon her with what she described as inhuman speed. He pressed her up against the mantle with superhuman strength and bit her on the neck, breaking the skin. At that moment, loud banging was heard downstairs at the front door. Jacques' friends, drunk and belligerent, 
were making a scene banging on his door asking Jacques to come down to let them inside. This distracted Jacques and the woman was able to break free, jumping out the window over the gallery railing and onto the street below. Her leg was fractured in three places and she died at the hospital later on account of shock and blood loss. But before she died, she told the police her version of the tale. When the police questioned St. Germain, he simply said, well, she's a prostitute. She was drunk and fell off the balcony. The police asked Jacques if he wouldn't mind just coming down to the station the next morning to clear things up and make an official statement. And Jacques agrees. But Monday comes around and Jacques is nowhere to be found. They show up at his house, and when Jacques doesn't answer the door, they decide to force their way in. They find numerous bloodstains about the place, both fresh and old, on furniture, on the floor, in the bathroom, in the kitchen, in his bedroom, everywhere. They find no food in the place, no utensils, no plates, but they do find plenty of bottles of red wine. But when they open up the wine, you know, pour it into a wine glass, give it a little swirl, they say, hey, wait a minute. I think, uh, I think I'm getting notes of, is that, is that human blood? Anyone else getting a little blood on the back of the tongue there? Perhaps a hint of be positive on the nose? They concluded that the bottles of wine were indeed mixed with human blood. As far as we know, Jacques Saint Germain, the Jacques who lived on the corner of Ursulines and Royal, was never seen again. But was this Saint Germain character really just a highly talented quack? Or was he a centuries-old vampire? Well, it's Halloween, so you know we're going with the latter. Anyway, that's the legend of Jacques Saint Germain. And with the exception of perhaps Lestat and Louis, he is perhaps one of New Orleans' favorite vampires. But as we shall see in part two, he certainly isn't the only one. But I just want to share one last story before we wrap things up. And it's one of my favorite stories because I guess I'm some kind of morbid freak. If you ever find yourself having a lazy afternoon stroll in New Orleans, and you're not sure what to do or where to go, head to the corner of Dauphine and Orleans and you'll notice a large peach-colored apartment building. It may look a bit strange as, to my knowledge, it is the only building in the quarter that is exactly three and a half stories tall, with two wrought iron galleries on the upper floors. But this odd building at 716 Dauphine Street has an even stranger backstory. On February 11, 1979, a bizarre tale ran in the Times-Picayune. The article relayed a story much like this. In the mid-1800s, a man by the name of Monsieur Le Prêtre owned the building. A wealthy plantation owner from Plaquemines Parish, Monsieur Le Prêtre, only stayed at his house in the French Quarter during the opera season, spending most of his time on his plantation. One day, a strange, swarthy man approached Lepret. He said he was an emissary for a very wealthy, very important Turkish sultan, and that this sultan would be honored if Lepret would be so kind as to rent his building out to the young sultan. Monsieur Lepret could see nothing wrong about the arrangement and readily agreed. Shortly after, the sultan moved in and bringing with him vibrant eastern rugs, strong-smelling incense and spices, he wore the finest silk robes, and laughter and music could be heard from his new home at all hours of the day and night. He brought with him, too, a harem of young women and young men. It was said they had decadent orgies and banquets and feasts that lasted until the wee hours of the morning. The sultan and his companions 
indulged in opium, wine, sex, whatever their heart so desired. But one day, a neighbor noticed everything at 716 Dauphine Street seemed a little quiet, too quiet. But she did notice a slow and steady dripping noise. And as she looked up to the third story gallery, she noticed blood was dripping through the cement below. Alarmed, she ran to the front gate, where she found a pool of blood slowly oozing from beneath the front doors. She called for the police, and when they arrived, they broke down the front doors and entered the Sultan's makeshift palace. There, they found a bloodbath. Body parts, including severed heads, were strewn all around the apartment. Blood was splattered all over the walls, all over the furniture. It seemed as if a group of assassins had broken in and murdered everyone in the building. Every young man and woman used for the Sultan's pleasure was murdered. The eunuchs, the Sultan's companions, all brutally killed. The body of the Sultan was found in the backyard in a shallow grave. His throat was filled with soil, as if he had been buried alive. It was somehow determined that the Sultan was in fact no Sultan at all, but an imposter, his brother being the real Turkish Sultan, and it was his brother who sent his guards to eliminate the imposter and all in his company. I believe this building is now an apartment building and has been for quite a while. Back in the 70s, two women came forward saying they would see his ghost from time to time, that they would see someone in colorful robes turn a corner or appear and disappear out of the corner of their eye. One woman heard shrieking and gurgling noises as if someone was choking on their own blood. In more recent times, some have said they hear the sound of body parts falling on the wood floors, although I don't know how they can be so sure that that's what they're hearing. Nearby on the 700 block of Toulouse, there is a bar called The Dungeon, a popular goth bar, and it's rumored that the Sultan, or the Sultan Imposter, would find young women and young boys there, and he would kidnap them, torture them, and use them for his harem. I don't know what the building that is now The Dungeon used to be, and if it would have been a place where one could easily snatch up women and children, or young girls and young boys, but who knows. Some say that the dungeon is haunted, that the jukebox levitates, people see apparitions and all that good stuff, but it's New Orleans, so it could be any old ghost. Because after all, we have no way of knowing if there's any kernel of truth to this Sultan story, or if it is entirely made up. I think often enough, though, there's at least some kernel of truth, and New Orleans of the 19th century certainly was familiar with brutal murders. Perhaps 150 years of telephone and embellishments led to the story we have today. All right, that about does it for part one of New Orleans Ghosts and Legends. Thank you guys for listening. I'd also like to address something. So this is my first video, and I was not quite aware of how severe my resting bitch face is. So I will work on that. Um, thanks for bearing with me. So in part two of New Orleans Ghosts and Legends, I am going to be talking about the LaLaurie Mansion, because I know that's a popular one. I will also be talking about a couple more, more vampires, a couple more ghost stories and haunted locations, as well as a story about the devil on St. Charles Avenue. So until then, I hope you guys have a great day. Actually, you don't have to wait because I am uploading these at the same time. I hope you're having a great Halloween and thank you guys for listening. Take care, everyone.